This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, we're just days away from the Women's World Cup kicking off. Years of preparation for this moment. Australia right behind the Matildas, of course. But the Matildas have used this moment that they've got the world's attention to send a clear message that women footballers around the world need better prize money, need better recognition in general. Later, we're going to bring you up to speed with everything that's going on ahead of this big global tournament getting started. It's a lot of excitement. We're going to speak to someone who's been following the Matildas today. Also coming up, the extent of greenwashing in Australia. How legit are the environmental claims that are being made by some of our biggest brands? First, though, Pack. psychedelics are an incredibly promising class of drugs, and when combined with specialist psychotherapy, may represent the next big thing in psychiatry. On Triple J. Yeah, just a heads up, we're talking about depression, mental illness for the next little bit because there's a big story that's been kicking around, you might have seen, that's got a lot of people, you know, really excited, I guess, some research that some say is a huge breakthrough in psychiatry and it's all about ketamine. Aussie and Kiwi scientists have found ketamine can be a safe and effective treatment for some people living with treatment-resistant depression. Now, the research that's been done has found one in five people who took part in the trial saw their symptoms disappear completely. So how big is this? What could it mean going forward? Shalala Madora has been taking a look. I call it the black hole period, all up. It took about two years to get through that. Zoe, which is not her real name, experienced a major depressive episode during the depths of COVID lockdowns. She tried everything to climb out of what she calls the black hole. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, lifestyle changes, talk therapy, you name it. But nothing touched the sides. Zoe found out about a trial to determine if ketamine could be used to help patients with treatment-resistant depression. I went ahead and submitted all the applications, did an initial interview, and then I was accepted into the program. You may know ketamine as a party drug, but as Professor Colleen Liu from the University of New South Wales explains, it's got therapeutic uses too. It is actually a popper approved medication that's been around for decades, used as an anaesthetic, also for sedation. Professor Liu, who's also a clinical psychiatrist, ran the trial that Zoe was part of. It took us about five years across seven academic mood disorder centres, six in Australia, one in New Zealand. Half of the trial participants, who, like Zoe, all had treatment-resistant depression, were given ketamine and the other half a placebo. Zoe says the process was pretty easy and actually quite relaxing. They simply ask you a few questions to make sure, you know, you're lucid at that point. And then they inject you with a really, really small dose of the ketamine. And then they leave you for an hour or so. Zoe noticed a difference from day one. I had been shallow breathing for so many months that my I could not breathe deeply. I could not calm my body. And that's exactly what the ketamine did. Zoe wants us to know that the improvements she felt after the trial were a result of both the ketamine and continuing her meds and psychotherapy. But for Zoe, the improvement was massive. I was stuck in the bottom of this deep, dark black hole. And the ketamine allowed me to crawl closer and closer back to the surface, to the light. Zoe was far from the only one. 
The ketamine trial had huge results. In the treatment group, 20% of people were in remission compared to 2% in the placebo group. In other words, one in five people had so few symptoms after getting injected with ketamine twice a week for four weeks that they were considered in remission for depression. Professor Liu says the majority of people who got ketamine experienced a significant improvement in their symptoms. About a third of people had a 50% improvement. Professor Liu says the trial has been transformative and she's already getting inquiries from psychiatrists around the globe. This is the, the most exciting development in the treatment of severe depression in the last 80 years. But just a reminder here, this isn't a first step treatment option. This is for people with severe treatment-resistant depression. We're talking about people who've already uh, gone to see a GP, psychologist, maybe even also a psychiatrist, and have been diagnosed with a clinical depression. And then on top of that, haven't done well with the standard treatment. People like Rachel. I have had depression for about 15 years. Um, so it started in high school and I have tried everything under the sun. She's even done several rounds of electroconvulsive therapy, also known as shock therapy, which is considered the last line of treatment for depression. Last week I had my 25th ECT for this course and my doctor would still consider that I am depressed. Rachel doesn't have any options left. Her depression is debilitating. I haven't been able to hold down a full-time job and watching everyone else get on with their lives and buy houses and go on holidays and everything, it's, it's really difficult. For Rachel, ketamine could be a literal life changer. It would be such, a, such an amazing thing to try. Two ketamine treatment clinics were recently set up in Australia. Professor Colleen Liu says she hopes the trial will open the door for more. The next step is what I would like to see is you know, well set up specialist ketamine treatment clinics that are run to a good standard. Zoe describes herself as a work in progress and she doesn't want people suffering through a major depressive episode to lose hope. I was stuck in the bottom of this deep, dark black hole and the ketamine allowed me to crawl closer and closer back to the surface, to the light. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. And a reminder, if this has raised anything for you, you can always get in touch with Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm interested to hear what you think about this. If you're someone who has struggled with treatment for depression, how tiring has it been trying different treatments? Message in 0439 757 Let's get into it a bit more with an expert. Professor Chris Davey is the head of psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. He's with us now. G'day, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on Hack. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. What are your thoughts about this research showing ketamine could be a breakthrough in the treatment of severe depression? Is it something that we should be pretty excited about? I mean, I think we should. We've been waiting um, quite a long time for some uh, new developments in, in the treatment of depression. The treatments we have are pretty good for a lot of people, but don't always help people. And, and our first line treatments are really about therapy and antidepressant medications. But, uh, you know, a good, uh, a good portion of people who try those treatments don't respond to them. And we kind of then don't have uh, as many options as we might wish. So ketamine sort of come along as, as another option for us and it shows a lot of promise. What, so, you know. 
Why is it that there really has been such limited progress in terms of the discovery of new treatments for mental health conditions for depression over the past half century? Because not a lot's changed, has it? It, if we think about um, medications, what you say is exactly right. So the the medications that we first discovered were useful for depression um, uh, emerged in the 1950s. And we, uh, at the time when we saw that these medications, the uh, uh, tricyclic antidepressants and monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which are rarely used anymore, but we uh, eventually worked out that the reason they worked was uh, the, the effects it had on the serotonin system. And since then, almost all our medications have been based on that observation. You know, we've, uh, they definitely have a lot less side effects than the medications we used then, but they still worked basically on the same principle. So the, uh, the ketamine has come along and works in a completely different way. And so it's opened up a whole lot uh, uh, of interest in 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 uh, how we understand depression. Are there more trials going on in Australia or treatment programs that are looking specifically at ketamine? Yeah, there are. So so there's still, you know, a fair bit to be worked out in terms of how ketamine can be useful for depression. So one thing I just uh, that's really important to emphasize with ketamine is that it works really quickly. So unlike other treatments uh, for depression which often take quite a few weeks before you start noticing an effect, ketamine works pretty well straight away, but it's a pretty short-lived effect. So after, a, you know, one dose of ketamine, you might feel a relief uh, from your depression for about a week. But that's, uh, you know, well, that that's something. But it's uh, obviously we want a much more enduring effect on depression. So there's still a lot of work now going on about just how often you need to have the ketamine treatment. In Colin Lou's trial, it was twice a week for four weeks. But is that, you know, do you need it? Uh, is that frequency right? Do you need it a bit longer than four weeks? You know, a lot of people will show a partial response but, but not an enduring one. And there are other ways we can uh, we can make that, um, effect uh, more long-lasting. So still a fair bit to be worked out. The, the other thing I should emphasise with the ketamine that uh, that is important is that we generally would give it in a clinical setting. So people have to come into a clinic, um, they have the ketamine, they're observed for a few hours. So it's a pretty impractical treatment in a lot of ways, uh, makes it pretty hard to access. So again, we're trying to work out other ways in which uh, we can make it a more practical treatment so that uh, people can... Um, access it more easily. And also, just to be very clear, this isn't something that you should be trying by yourself at home administering ketamine to treat depression. I would not recommend that, no, no. So one of the unusual things about ketamine is that it seems to be effective as an antidepressant at a pretty low dose, so a a much lower dose than people would generally be using recreationally, and it doesn't seem to have an antidepressant effect, actually, at high doses, Um, not not to mention all the other um, problems that come with accessing uh, um, uh, drugs that you don't know what's actually in them from the black market, etc., Is there resistance by some in the psychiatry world regarding this kind of research? Like when it was announced uh, a little while ago that psychiatrists would be able to prescribe MDMA and psilocybin, there was some uncertainty that was expressed. Is that kind of widespread? Yeah, look, I mean, ketamine, I'd say that, that that's the, the evidence for ketamine is a lot stronger than for the other medicines uh, you, you just uh, mentioned. So there's a little bit less scepticism about ketamine. The scepticism about ketamine is more about how enduring the effect is, you know, that it's pretty 
um, short-lasting. But with uh, um, psilocybin and MDMA, the evidence is much sparser. So there's only been a handful of trials that have really uh, demonstrated they might be effective. They've been pretty promising, but I'd be, it'd be fair to say a lot of my colleagues think that the changes um, to our regulations around prescribing it have been pretty premature, but it probably we do need some more research. But, uh, but you know, from another perspective, it's uh, going to generate a whole lot of uh, interesting work now that these medications are available to be prescribed. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Professor Chris Davey from the University of Melbourne about uh, these trials uh, looking at ketamine as a treatment option for people with severe depression. Chris, how long would it be before we could see something like ketamine approved for use here? Like, are we still a long way off? No, you know, ketamine is, uh, you know, it's a, um, a medication that's been around since 1970 was when it was first used as an anaesthetic. So it's available now to be prescribed uh, and it always has been. In fact, it hasn't actually been approved for use um, for depression. So it is an off-label kind of use. There's a version of ketamine, uh, um, the, the, the trade name is Spravado, that has actually been used. Um, has uh, been authorised for use in depression in Australia. It's very expensive, though, so that's uh, um, a lot more difficult to access for people because it's expensive. So it is actually available now in uh, private settings, but it'll be well and truly out of the reach of a lot of people, about $1,000 for each session of treatment. So it's... uh, very expensive to access. Right. I was going to say, so the cost is uh, an issue as well. Are there any other big barriers um, with this being used as a treatment so far? Any other big side effects that are worrying uh, experts? Oh, look, I mean, so, so, so the main things with ketamine is uh, like you have to have it in a clinic, you have to go to a clinic, you have to be monitored, et cetera. So that, that makes it expensive. Um, the cost of the drug, especially the, the commercial one, um, is, is expensive. Um, so it, 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 those two things are the, probably the things that make it hardest to access uh, and, and make it uh, harder to sort of roll out as a, as a treatment more broadly. In terms of the treatment itself, you know, the, um, the effects it has on you, the, it, it, you have this dissociative kind of effect that some people enjoy and that's why they like to use it recreationally. But a lot of people do find a little bit frightening and can become very anxious um, under the influence of it. So it's not always that well tolerated. And then in, you know, when people are using in the long term, there's some concerns and most of this sort of, uh, most of our worries come from people who have, you know, ketamine abuse problems. Uh, It can cause um, fibrosis and scarring of the bladder that can be irreversible. Um, and some people are just a little bit concerned that it might cause some cognitive problems with longer term use. But uh, mo- most of that evidence comes from people who are, you know, have uh, um, using it at high doses over long periods of time um, in an abuse setting and, and not from our clinical setting. But, you know, it's still early days. So we need to be looking out on uh, for the longer term side effects. Well, there's definitely a lot of interest, people, right now on our our text line, very interested in this research and what it could mean for the future. Professor Chris Davey from the University of Melbourne, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Oh, great. Thanks for having me.
And on the text line, someone says, over the past 10 years, I've tried about 10 medications and talk therapy for depression and anxiety. It's exhausting, not to mention expensive, trying to find a solution, trying to remain optimistic, starting a new treatment when past attempts have been unsuccessful. Another person says, I had 18 sessions of ECT in 2021. On session nine, my doctor added in ketamine with the anaesthetic as they put me to sleep and it changed my life. Two years on, I'm happy. I'm in a full-time job and I've got a steady partner and buying a house. That was from Ella in Brisbane. So look, happy and, um, you know, very good to hear those stories as well. Hack. Sometimes people just say something because it sounds nice. It's called greenwashing. On Triple Jack. When you're buying something, how much do the environmental credentials of a product matter to you? Like if there are two products, similar price, one claims to be green, you're probably more likely to go for that one, yeah? The thing is, some products might be claiming to be more environmentally friendly than they actually are. Using green colours, pictures of animals, gives the impression that it's better for the planet than it really is. It's called greenwashing. Well, Australia's consumer watchdog is now cracking down on this. What are they doing? Let's find out. Hack reporter Joe Lauder is with us now. G'day, Joe. Thanks for coming on. Just to start with, what is greenwashing? So, Dave, greenwashing is basically the term that's used for when a business makes a claim about their environmental credentials that are either false or misleading. And as you said, like sustainability is a really big issue for people in Australia and all around the world. Um, people are really worried about climate change. They're really concerned about the environmental impact of the products we buy, like it might be about the waste that comes from it or water use. And so a lot of people are buying products that have good environmental or sustainability credentials. And businesses know that and they use that to sell things to us. So, you know, if you're looking at two T-shirts and one says climate-friendly... A lot of people are going to opt for that one, whatever climate-friendly means. And there are just so many examples of these terms that are used to sell stuff, um, sell stuff to us, like eco-friendly or climate-positive, net zero, even phrases like, this product does not harm the environment or post-consumer recycled plastic. Like, these phrases are really confusing. Even someone who does a lot of reporting in this space, sometimes I see stuff and I'm like... I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I guess it's hard to know. You don't even think about it now. You just see it and you're like, oh, well, that looks good for the environment. You don't think about what's actually backing that up, what the research is, whether it's a legitimate claim. So why is the ACCC looking at this? Yeah, so the ACCC is the watchdog that regulates consumer law in Australia. And so they make sure the companies don't make false or mislead misleading statements to sell stuff to us. And they've been looking at greenwashing for a while now. And they're especially concerned for a couple of reasons. They said that companies that greenwash, it essentially undermines trust in all green claims that any company makes, legitimate or not. And also because businesses that are genuinely making sustainable products often have to pay more to do that. Often their, biz, um, their products also cost more for people buying them. So it's also unfair if companies are pretending to do that. They're reaping those benefits, but they're not actually doing the work. Did they find out how much greenwashing is actually going on in Australia? Yeah, so they did a sweep late last year over a couple of weeks and they looked at about 250 businesses across eight different sectors just to see what claims they were making. And they found that 57% of businesses that they reviewed were making what they thought were potentially misleading environmental claims. Like 57% is a lot. 
And the industries that they found were the biggest offenders were personal care and skin care was number one, fashion was number two, and then food and drinks, which is also a lot to do with the packaging around food and drinks, interestingly. That's wild that it's more than half of companies, right? So what yeah, kind of claims massive. are we talking about? Yeah, so the most common issue that they found was what the ACCC called vague and unqualified claims. So some of the statements we were talking about, like green or kind to the planet or eco-friendly, there's no actual definition for what that means. It's more of just like a vibe that you're trying to sell to people. So there was that. There's also the ACCC, what they called absolute claims that weren't true. So companies saying that something is 100% plastic-free or carbon positive, and that's not the case. But also the symbols that some companies were using to sell products or images, like they might put a logo of a planet or green leaves, and it makes it look like it was an official certification, but it meant nothing. And also a lot to do with offsets and emissions as well as a big one. So what can the ACCC do about this? So today they've released guidelines for Australian businesses, basically for what they should look out for when they're marketing products. And I've got to say, Dave, some of it is like, quite straightforward like be accurate and truthful about your claims don't make claims that you can't back up show you're working when you're making a claim don't make broad vague statements or this is one that i particularly like um use clear and easy to understand language it sounds they also like advice for doing a uni assignment you know yeah. back on an assessment <laughs> totally they also highlighted as well and i think this is important that there's a lot of confusion around offsets and emissions and a lot of those claims like um net zero or um climate positive, that kind of thing, or emissions positive is around that. And they said that businesses should be really careful about making claims about being carbon neutral or net zero. And basically, if you haven't done the carbon accounting and have it verified, you should be really careful making those claims. And But they did say at this point in time that this whole process wasn't about enforcement and penalising these companies just yet. So what can happen, I guess, down the track? Is legal action an option? Yeah, totally. And there are some really interesting legal cases that are already happening in this space at the moment. There's one in court against the gas company Santos. They've been accused of greenwashing because of their net zero plans and how that stacks up with what they're actually doing. And that's actually the first kind of its case in the world, which would be quite interesting to watch when that happens. The finance regulator ASIC has also taken a superannuation company to court. It says that, that it was misleading customers because it basically claimed that it wasn't investing in fossil fuels when they found that it was. Also, the regulator fined a company, an energy company called Talau. Um, they were fined for making claims about being carbon neutral and about some of their gas projects. So there is definitely some enforcement happening. There's also a federal Senate inquiry on at the moment into greenwashing, and that's going to report back in December. So there's definitely heaps happening in this space. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what that Senate inquiry finds. And I think people are so keen to know what's going on behind the scenes here, especially if they are potentially being misled. Joe Lauder, thank you so much for keeping us across it. Thanks heaps, Dave. Yeah, and a lot of messages coming through on this one as well. Somebody says, yeah, nothing new here. Greenwashing. It's been happening for a very, very long time. Hi. I'm excited. I think it's got to be the best World Cup ever and I get goosebumps every time I think about that first game. On Triple Jack. Yeah, it's almost time. We've been waiting years for the Women's Football World Cup here in Australia. It's kicking off on Thursday. 
Australia co-hosting with New Zealand. There's a lot of hype around this. And you might have seen a lot of attention which the Matildas have used in a video they've released this week. We call on those who run the game to work to provide opportunities for girls and women in football, whether that be players, coaches, administrators or officials. And we call on all those in positions of power across football, business and politics to come on this journey with us to make women's football as big as it can be here and around the world. So let's find out a bit more, get a few more details. Anna Harrington is a sports journalist with AAP. She's also co-host of the Far Post Women's Football podcast. Hey, Anna, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about the Matildas. Yeah, I bet. And this is, must be a really exciting week uh, for anyone who's obsessed with football in general. We just heard a bit of that video message there. What exactly are the Matildas calling for in this message to the world? Well, the Matildas, we spoke to a couple of them today. One of them was Alana Kennedy, um, defender, who said that they wanted to have a voice in something bigger than football. And when you read the full message, it's clear a big part of it is putting some heat on FIFA in regards to uh, the prize money pool at the uh, the World Cups. The um, As much as the women's prize pool has increased, it's still only about a, a quarter of, of the men's. So it's putting out a bit of heat on them there. Um, the other thing is, I think it's something like 736 footballers at this World Cup and a large percentage of these um, federations and the, the playing groups don't have collective bargaining agreements. So the Matildas obviously uh, played a pretty pivotal role um, in terms of women's footballers' rights. They went on strike in 2015. They had a they have really good um, CBA that they agreed, I think it was 2019, with Football Australia. So this video was done with... with uh, um, Professional Footballers Australia, their players union. Um, so it's about putting the heat on that. There's also clearly sort of underlying, um, or if you read between the lines, I suppose, some little um, nods to, to Football Australia, to the A-Leagues about um, making sure that players in Australia continue to um, get, I guess, better treatment, uh, be able to work and play full-time as footballers. And, yeah, clearly there's a, that message of making sure that can happen with other federations around the world, along with some really nice nods to the rights that past players have managed to earn, such as not having to do their own laundry, you know, washing their own kits, getting paid, being full-time athletes. So, yeah, I think it was a pretty important message. Yeah, it's big stuff that they were talking about there. And like you said, a message to uh, officials in Australia, but also around the world, talking about women footballers uh, who are getting nothing around the world. Obviously, like, completely different issue, but it kind of reminds me of the video that the Socceroos released ahead of the World Cup last year in Qatar. Like, a lot of teams seem to be using these big platforms at big events to send messages, right? hundred percent. I think it's um, impossible not to draw comparisons. Um, you've obviously got in this Matilda's one, all 23 players are saying lines of the script and they've come together and said, this is, you know, the sort of voice we want to have. These are the statements we want to make. And it allows them to do that ahead of the World Cup, I suppose, without all being questioned on every single thing separately. So, it's, yeah, it's collectively, they're doing it together. And, yeah, they from based on what the players are saying today, Alana Kennedy and Claire Hunt, they're, they're pretty proud of what they've put together. And I think the reception's been very very good as well. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, you've been kind of around the Matildas, around them today, seeing their training. How are they going? What's the energy like? It's very good. They're um, in pretty buoyant spirits, I think, understandably, after that really impressive win over France. They're, in terms of form, they're, they're peaking in the right direction. There's a feeling that they've got a lot of depth, especially at the back now. Um, we know how dangerous that attack is with the likes of Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford. There's 
obviously still a couple of little um, injury things. We know Tamiki Yelp had that little knee tweak that she got the other day, um, wasn't training today, and Kai Simon's on her own program coming back from that ACL. It was just Charlie Grant who was sick who wasn't there today. But otherwise, they all seem very buoyant, in good spirits. They've been training for this for a while. Um, they've been in camp. They're all pretty up and about. They seem to have a really lovely situation in terms of their base camp hotel with, with lots of nice little personal touches to make it pretty special for them. And I think for them, it's just uh, anticipation now and a lot of excitement before this game against Ireland, which they had their biggest ever crowd on home soil last week in Melbourne, and that's going to be smashed on Thursday night. Yeah. So there's certainly a lot of anticipation and, yeah, excitement. Definitely. And I can tell that you're really pumped for what's to come uh, over the next few weeks. What, what are you most excited about, Anna? It's a tough one. I think seeing how far these Matildas can go will be really exciting. It feels like they have, um, they obviously had some wobbles along the road over the past couple of years, but it feels like form-wise they're really peaking at the right time. We're going to have some really sensational players um, and teams in Australia and obviously over in New Zealand as well. There's some big games in the group stage, but I think it's going to be exciting to see the sort of crowds we get in and how far this can take women's football because we know all the Matildas games are sold out. Um, I imagine the US and that will bring some big crowds over in New Zealand and yeah, it's exciting. It seems like a, a nice buzz, especially when you hear from some of the camps um, in the other teams here in Australia. I know Ireland and England are both up in, uh, both uh, over here as well. So it's exciting. Definitely, and I mean a lot of work for you, no doubt. But it's probably work that you don't mind doing. It's fair to say. Uh, stuff we're really passionate about. Anna Harrington from the Far Post podcast. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. And, you know, there will be matches being played in cities across the country, in Sydney, in Adelaide, Brisbane, Perth, Melbourne, all of those places. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.